Welcome to another episode of Civic Cipher. I am your host, Ramses Ja. Uh, big shout out to Q Ward, who is off today, but have no fear because we have a very special guest in with us. Um, today's show is going to be about race relations, uh, really, between black and Asian communities in this country. There's a lot there. There's been a lot in recent months that we've had to talk about. And today's episode, we're going to be continuing that dialogue um, as we committed to doing. Um, my guest today is Lisa Sun. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ramsey. Um, a little bit about Lisa is uh, she's a former state House of Representatives candidate for legislative Legislative District Number Nineteen, uh, a former vice chair of the AZAAPI Caucus, and you know, just an all-around community activist and politician. And and from what I know of you, someone who has a lot of insight into the history between our two communities as we relate to each other, but also. Um, you know, maybe a, a path forward, a, a path toward, you know, having a more profound and meaningful relationship that will, you know, uh, result in, in more positive interactions and less negative interactions between our two communities. And so I'm grateful that you would take the time to come on the show um, and, you know, share your thoughts and your opinions, um, you know, and, you know, in a little bit, we'll, we'll certainly uh, peel back some of the layers and, and, uh, check out what's going on there so um before we get to that though uh it's standard practice around this time to do uh a little bit of celebrating of what we like to call ebony excellence for ebony excellence what we do is we highlight something positive in the black community um this week it was one that i believe to be very special q actually sent this over um in Shreveport, Louisiana, there's a man named Michael Lafitte, and he started a program called Dads on Duty. Uh, after 23 students were arrested in three days, parents in Shreveport, Louisiana, took it upon themselves to organize and patrol the halls of the schools in shifts. And what they do is they greet students, um, they help maintain a positive environment, and so far, it's been working. They're looking to actually expand the program into other schools, cities, and states. And the, the interesting thing about this is that none of these dads have backgrounds as counselors or as, you know, in, in law enforcement or anything like that. They're just fathers. Um, and that's exactly what uh, Michael Lafitte says. He says, we're dads. We decided the best people who can take care of our kids are who are us, end quote. Um, and, you know, they just fill the halls with, you know, dad jokes and a little tough love and some stern looks. And, you know, so far there's been no fights. Um, again, when you see the drastic turnaround, 23 students arrested ac across three days because of fighting. And then these dads show up in mass and hang out in the hallways and crack jokes and just really are a presence. They all wear the same T-shirts um, and they interact with the students. You know, some of the students... Uh, I've seen some of the videos on this. Some of the students uh, seem to be really grateful and they feel protected uh, in a strange way. Um, even though these men aren't their biological fathers, they're just some dads that decided to show up. But I think that that's Ebony Excellence, if I ever heard of it. I'm glad that we got a chance to share that story. 
uh, about the dads on duty. Now, moving along, back to our guest, Lisa Sun. So, twenty twenty was a difficult year for everyone, and everyone has their story about that year. Twenty twenty one, of course, has been very much a continuation of a lot of the the stories that we begin to hear about in 2020. Um, But there is a a unique characteristic that I believe relates to Asian Americans specifically. And, you know, discrimination against Asian Americans goes all the way back to perhaps the first Asian Americans that ever landed on this, you know, uh, continent. But last year, I believe there was a marked change in tone with respect to our Asian brothers and sisters when Donald Trump said all the, uh, the things that he said about the China virus and the, the, I, I don't even want to repeat all the, the hurtful and racist things that he said. And I believe that that gave license to people, um, his supporters specifically, to terrorize uh, and make fun of, brutalize, etc., Asian Americans. Um, add to that that in certain communities, there has been a long-standing deep divide between Asian Americans and those communities, namely black communities. Now, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the reason that we see lots of Asian Americans opening up businesses in lower-income neighborhoods, uh, black and brown neighborhoods, is not because... Asian folks want to take advantage of the poor people in this country. Um, it's a result of folks immigrating here um, and qualifying for loans that black people and brown people in this country have been systemically discriminated against um, in terms of receiving those loans. <coughs> and then for the Asian folks uh, that, that show up, they... They're enterprising people. They, sh- they show up. They have to create, a, you know, an economic system to support themselves and where they can qualify for loans and where they can set up shop, if, if, if you will, um, is those communities, those black and brown communities. And so it ends up being this dynamic um, that looks, based on only the optics, if you don't know the mechanism behind it, like... Perhaps these folks are coming here to take advantage of us. And then there's a component where there's a lot of significant cultural differences in Asian. And, and, you know, I'm going to try to be a little bit more specific, um, but Chinese, Japanese, um, Chinese mostly. And I'm from Los Angeles. And this is those are the types of people I would interact with Chinese and Korean folks um, when I was growing up. Everybody. There's all types yeah. of Asian folks in California, but those are the, the folks I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of cultural differences, you know, um, the way that folks relate to each other is very different 
than the way, you know, black folks relate to each other and, you know, to other people. And a lot of times it can come across dismissive. It can come across, you know, whatever. And it's just cultural. You know, mm -hmm. um, there's there's people who grow up in very loving households, you know, Asian mother, Asian father. And, you know, the way that love is shown and the way that the legacy is written in those cultures is very different. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that those longstanding issues and, and the failure to connect in a meaningful way over many years. And then, of course, there was, um, I forget the little girl's name, but there was a, a significant incident in Los Angeles where uh, a store owner, an Asian woman, shot a little black girl and she actually died over that. And this was and in the that, early 90s. Yes, and that definitely echoes even within the AAPI community as shocking. Yeah, it's yeah. It's just, I bet. you know, heartbreaking to hear someone within our community could go that far right. in retaliation. Right, right. And so when you when you think of, you know, how these these two communities, black and Asian com uh, communities and people relate to each other, um, you start to recognize that there has been a, a divide that has perhaps deepened since 2020. Um, now, I want to maintain that the vast number of the attacks on Asian folks over the past two years have not been by black people. Exactly. But there's enough to tell a story if you want. The media can tell a story and then, you know, we're caught in this weird cycle. But the point is, there should be none. It's contrived. A absolutely. And, and I want to say this again. The point is, there should be none. We're brothers and we're sisters and we share this planet. We share this country. And despite us having significant cultural differences, we do have more that that we can relate on than we differ on. We all love our families. We all, you know, love to laugh and, and so forth and so on. Very rich histories and et cetera. With all that said, today, um, I wanted to make sure that we painted a picture for our listeners so that folks who maybe are not black and maybe are not Asian um, who are listening to you and I speak right now can perhaps understand how things like white supremacy can affect people who are not white and it can empower people who are not white to continue <laughs> mm -hmm. to propagate yep. it. Proliferate. Proliferate. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Um, and you know, it's it's a very ugly monster that runs on its own, it turns on its own axis. And, you know, that's what we're here to talk about. So uh, that brings me to my first question, which is, how do you feel about the relations between black and Asian communities? In general, the word community is so broad. It can be a neighborhood. It could be a small town. It can be a school. It can even be the place where you work can be called a community. And my struggle being an AAPI member of our society, interacting with the black community has overall been very positive. Mm -hmm. I think that it's up to the individual's perspective based on their anecdotal experiences to make an assessment on the health 
of the relationship between the AAPI and the black communities. I mean, we can go and discuss our personal experiences, but for me, I grew up in a very all-inclusive town called Ann Arbor, Michigan Mm -hmm. in the 80s and in the 90s. And the community that I belonged to was very diverse. I had a neighbor uh, that had young children that called on me to be their babysitter. And the father was a a black surgeon, and the mother was a white stay-at-home mom. And my early exposure to diversity was very healthy. Now, that doesn't go without saying that I had a perfect interaction Mm -hmm. with the black communities. But when I did, I had that personal positive anecdotal experiences with certain black members of the community that tells me that when you have a negative experience, it's just that person that shared a similar physical attribute particularly the skin color. Yeah. That's it. But when you don't have enough of that positive anecdotal experiences, you can see how someone can warp that perception and can lead to discrimination and even racism. And that can be fueled by certain family members or their mentor within their own communities that may share that same negative anecdotal experiences at times those experiences it's not fair it's not balanced because childhood trauma adverse childhood experiences plays a huge factor into how to shape the mind of a youngster within the community and that can further translate on how well they interact with certain members of our communities, particularly people of color. Again, going back to my own experiences, it's been very positive. And the negative, I just look at it as an individual, not a broad brush within a given community, because then that will be discrimination. Absolutely. You know, and there's something that's interesting. So I've been to Ann Arbor, but I spent more time in Detroit. And, you know, they're very different culturally, but, you know, they're close in terms of their proximity to each other. And in Detroit, you know, you can find a lot of black folks that live very black lives. Right. Um, And and. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's places, there's other places in in this country where you can find a lot of Asian people who live very Asian lives, Chinese, there's Chinatowns everywhere and so forth. Um, But what ends up happening a lot of times in those uh, circumstances is that you have a very limited view of what other people might be like, you know, to your point. So, again, those limited interactions... Um, especially if you're interacting with people who are perhaps not the best, you know, best suited to represent an entire <laughs> race of people. Exactly. I mean, then, you just said it. Doesn't it sound ridiculous? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's insane. 
Um, but I do see how it can happen. Exactly. And uh, it's, it's, I think there's a, a degree of individual responsibility that, that needs to come into play um, for each of these people who has, again, a, a, an unfounded or, or a, a baseless generalization um, of any group of people. It's incumbent upon them to try to learn more. But in terms of folks listening to you and me right now, who perhaps don't feel that way, the, the people that our listeners tend to be a little bit more progressive, a little bit more educated folks that yeah. really want to see a better world for all of us. Yeah. Um, it's our job to identify in those people, be they black, white, Asian, whatever, um, to, to point out to them, hey, listen, I think that what you're basing your, your uh, generalizations on, it's, it's based on a limited you know, interaction, a limited amount of interaction with these types of people. Now, I want to jump in here. A lot of what, a, lo a lot of people don't know this about this show. Um, I have an older brother. His name is Raka, Iris Science of the Dilated Peoples. That's a hip-hop group that um, is relatively successful. Um, you know, toured around the world and plaques on the walls, this, that, and the other. Um, this is part of the reason why I've been able to be on the radio, because my big brother kind of looked out for me, and here okay, I am. Nice. Yeah. Uh, my big brother is half Korean. Mm -hmm. Um, actually two of my big brothers are half Korean and one of my sisters. Okay. So when I was sitting down to create this show, I talked with my older brother Raka and I says, Hey, so here's what I'm trying to do. Do you have any advice for me? And he made sure that he said that I need to share this space in solidarity with people who don't look like me and don't forget who showed up in 2020. He mentioned something to me. He says, can you name uh, one time when black folks showed up for Asian folks? And he said, I, I was asked that question and I couldn't come up with an answer, but I can name a few instances where Asian folks showed up for black people. And he said, make sure that black people know that. Now, my, my brother is black, too. His, his father is black. Sure, his, yeah, his father is my father. Right, yeah. Yeah. But his mother is, is mm -hmm. uh, from uh, South Korea. But you guys are family. He's my brother. Yeah. So he wanted to make sure that this wasn't a show where the black listeners, which admittedly they're not, the majority of our listeners are not black. Um, this show is meant to empower non-black people. There's plenty of shows to empower black people, but this show is to give some a glimpse some perspective into what it's like to be black this show is a bridge there it's you go bridge. thank you so um With the rainbow over yeah i like yeah. that i like that that works but yes he said make sure that um we we remember who showed up in 2020 and this was interesting for me because i hadn't thought about it my personal experience um was that i've been to more Asian majority places on this planet than almost everyone 
I'd say maybe 99.99% of people. Wow. I've been to yeah. China, mm-hmm. Japan, Vietnam, right. in Indonesia, Malaysia, yeah. uh, Singapore, Thailand. Like we're everywhere. Uh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I, Hawaii, yes. you know, uh, yeah. just, just got back from Hawaii not too long ago. And these weren't just like quick trips to see what's going on. Like right. I was there on the ground interacting yep. with people. And, you know, I've told the story before, but for me, the most significant and prolific way to, to connect with a people. Mm-hmm. I've been to other countries too, yeah. you know, but the the most significant way to connect with a people is, you know, I took a page out of my father's book. My father was a minister. And uh I found myself in the the churches or the places of worship of, you know, all these different countries, right? And yeah. and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Asian people are as different as they come, as diverse as, as they come. Um but in all these countries with all these people where I didn't speak the language and I was the only person that looked like me and I was there by myself and I had to walk around and try to have a meaningful experience in a, a place on the other side of the planet where <laughs> my I have no family. Yeah. It's very, very lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't talk to anyone. Right. You know, but I could go to church or, you know, temple or whatever. Yeah. There's a Buddhist temple or, mm-hmm. a, you know, whatever it was, you know. And I was welcomed every time. Yeah. The only thing they would say is, could you take off your shoes? That was it. <laughs> you know? And and they say that to everybody. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, for Ramses, um, I recognize that that is a beautiful experience and, and, you know, a unique experience. Not everyone gets to have that. And so when my brother was talking to me about that um, request, it didn't strike me as odd but it did strike it it did feel like it was news because i just assumed that everything was okay yeah and then once he broke it down i'm like well you know i i kind of get it and then we're seeing the stop asian the was it stop asian hate that we're now renaming to stop asian harm thank you i appreciate that um campaigns shortly thereafter and really need to show up for our asian american brothers and sisters and i says in my mind now's the time that we can show up right Right. because my brother asked when were black people there for asian folks well now we can be there and i can start with this program so um can i add on to the hashtag that you just mentioned stop asian hate Mm -hmm. and the reason why we're switching it up to stop asian harm is because the word hate has been weaponized uh, by our elected officials our law enforcement and even in our judicial system to further criminalize uh, people of color because with privatized prison and mass incarceration that word is over utilized to imprison small you know acts of crime that are nonviolent, majority of them over 80% are nonviolent. Yeah. And they usually tag it on the word hate because when you do a hate crime, your sentencing goes up. Yeah. Yeah. And we can't support that. We right. just can't. And with the stop Asian um, hashtag stop Asian hate, I just think that it's been overly used in the past year with the 
incidents, especially with the visceral comments from our previous president. Yeah. And again, we don't want to go into details on what he was saying, but it was, it was disgusting enough, and it emboldened these certain constituents of his to do, you know. Really horrible thing. Yes, really horrible. And I'm glad that you mentioned that it wasn't all from the black communities. No. That it, is a mis information right the thing is there uh were enough videos of asian folks being attacked by black people to paint that picture in the media but i maintain that the number of black people that attacked asian people should be zero it should have been zero it should have always been zero and regardless of how black people have felt um, about our relationship with Asian Americans, uh, we get nowhere by behaving the way white folks used to behave toward us in the past. Mm-hmm. We get nowhere by behaving that way toward our Asian brothers and sisters. And so I needed to make sure that I stated that. Now, we do have to take a pause um, for some commercials, but we're coming back in just a second, so don't go nowhere. And now... And if you're just tuning into Civic Cipher, I am your host Ramses Ja. Q Ward is uh, off today, but no worries. We have Lisa Sun with us, uh, and we are discussing race relations between black and Asian American communities. Um, And for those just tuning in, uh, Lisa is a former state House of Representative candidate for Legislative District 19, a former vice chair of the AZAAPI caucus, and a community activist and politician. And one thing that we didn't get to talk about is your background. It feels a little late in the conversation to be talking (laughs) about that, but please let everyone know what your background is. Well, you just mentioned uh, the highlights of it. There's not really much. Well, how about your ethnic background? Because, (laughs) you know, on the radio, folks can't really hear it. So being a middle-aged woman, I, you know, immigrated here to the States when I was seven years old. And before that, I was born off of the islands of South Korea called Jeju. And my parents were also immigrants to South Korea due to the civil war in China mm-hmm. uh, back in the uh, 50s. So I come from three generations of immigrants. Mm. So we know how it feels to be an outcast mm. in a given society. Three generations. And at times when it spans that long, there's a sense of loss of belonging that is really hard to uh, explain to people that don't share the same uh, experiences. And that sometimes lead to uh, that desire to fit in. So a lot of the immigrants that comes from the Asian continent in general would come to the United States of America, and they will know right away where the uh, the totem pole, the hierarchy, the yeah. hierarchy, and that is just something that's undeniable. Although we don't talk about it, mm. but it is there, 
and we know right away who's at the bottom. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that well, has a huge, you know, play in that. Well, let's let's talk about that. Um, so what we do on the show is we have a segment. It's called Baba, become a better ally. Um, in short, if you were able to empower the listeners of this program to become a better ally to not only Asian Americans, but, you know, to all of us. What is your vision on how we can best be better brothers and sisters? And it's funny when you say Baba, because in Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, the word Baba means father. And you can even see there's so many commonality even within our languages, let alone our culture and our shared history. Sure, sure. I love that. Focusing on our shared history, which has been whitewashed, is not being taught, especially after the Reconstruction era, because the South really took over by the elected officials that were still racist. And they made sure that our history was not written in the history books. Asians been around since the colonial time. We know that colonial times has been around just as long as our constitution. Colonial spans over 200 years, and Chinese and Philippines were, um, you know, common, but they weren't um, a large group. They were probably around about 100 to a couple of thousand. Yeah. And because they were discriminated by the white Europeans, Mm -hmm. they were uh, only legally allowed to marry other minorities mm. such as the blacks the native, native americans, americans um, Mexican. and um, mexicans if they're in that area Part of the country. but they were not allowed to marry the whites and if it did, they did they will uh, be lynched or even murdered so we have common dna from two four hundred years back and we share that histories for hundreds and hundreds of years Unfortunately, when they saw us being united, it bothered the white supremacy because Mm. they were afraid that we will consolidate power. So moving forward, when there was more immigration coming forward from the uh, Asian continents, they realized that the number's getting too high. And the Asian Americans were like the first ethnicity group to have the exclusion act and to this day we are still the only one and that puts a you know a dark cloud over the aapi community that none of us know the history so what you're saying (laughs) is that it's probably a good idea to learn the history you know that's an obvious statement sure the question is if it's not written down and if it's not published, how can we learn the history? Well, you know what? I'll jump in here. Um, in preparing for this show today, I learned new things. Um, a simple Google search. We live, you know, for everything that wasn't written down. Yeah. There are people like you still telling stories. Mm-hmm. And the, the information exists somewhere. It yeah. might not be taught in schools, but right. it exists. And yes. so, you know, just like me. Going and sitting in front of a computer, typing, taking 15 minutes to an hour per week to do some research. (laughs) Yeah. 
you know, folks listening to you and me have this conversation can do the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, knowledge is power. And this is the way that we, you know, create a better, you know, world for for each other. Yes. And, you know, that brings me to my next point. I did want to ask you, what are some of the things that you feel contributed to the current relationship between black and Asian communities in this country? I personally believe that that crack, that division, actually started um, very strongly after World War II mm. because that's when they took the economic structure and used it to divide us. For example, after the Japanese uh, encampment, they gave a lot of the Japanese um, you know, compensation by allowing them to buy homes and helping them with loans. Mm. And that actually further assisted with the rest of the Asian American communities. Mm -hmm. Because in some ways, the bank were like, oh, they're actually great investors. Let's open the door for the rest of the Asian Americans. And as that occurred, unfortunately, simultaneously, the black communities, families, were denied of these loans. Mm. And back in the 40s, to buy a house, you only need like about ten dollars to $12,000. And then if you look at the pay and the salaries, uh, the average uh, black families could afford it. They could afford a mortgage. They could afford to get the loans from the bank. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they were denied. And then on top of that, they redlined a lot of the black communities. They would actually make them rent homes from white folks so that they can, uh, you know, provide equity and profit while the black communities were only allowed to rent. This continued over a span of two to three generations. Now, it wasn't until 19, don't quote me on the year, but I think it was 1968 when it was written in, in law that the black communities can buy homes. Anywhere, yeah. And when that happened, it was too late because... A lot of the wealth had already been built and sucked out of the black community. Exactly. And mm. what made it worse was that they were buying over the price. They were over Overpaying, market. yeah. And that has been shown because we can retrieve all the sales mm-hmm. and the uh, transaction uh, and the, all the mortgages being signed. Mm-hmm. That And then if you were to sell it to a white family, they will have a better, better rate. price, yeah. So the question is that, but then from then till now, shouldn't things equalize? Well, to this day, I live in West Phoenix. And in that area... We have loans being denied to black folks at 80%. Hispanics, 70%. Asians, 40%. And what's the benchmark? The white folks. Wow. Okay. That makes me so angry. You have no idea. Well, you know what? Um... So, I, you know, I, I spoke about my dad um, a little earlier. Uh, where I was born, actually, um, there's a, a place called Lafayette Park in, in California, um, in Los Angeles. And 
you know, it was one of those communities, like you said, where, um, you know, my, my dad mm-hmm. came from some means, yeah. right? And s- during that time, black people could not buy houses anywhere. Yeah. You know, black, you were kind of restricted to certain places that you literally could not. It was uh, illegal to do so, to own a, a house outside of these certain neighborhoods um, by law. Mm-hmm. I just want to make sure people listening yes, know yeah. that this was actually the law. If yeah. you were black, you could not own a house above this street or, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, at the time when my grandfather and grandmother were, you know, putting down some roots in Los Angeles, um, they wanted to live in a nice neighborhood. And at the time, there were black entertainers who were doing well. This is Los Angeles, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So there's Little Richard. There's you know oh, all yes, the right. there's all these like entertainers uh-huh. and stuff like that. So they buy a house in this this community called Lafayette Park, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's where I you know we, I remember we called it the Castle. It was a really nice house in a really nice neighborhood. Yeah. But the legacy of that neighborhood now, of course, everyone lives there. All different colors of yep. people live there. But um, the legacy of that neighborhood is it was a black only neighborhood where the rich black folks could live. And right. this is where my father, this was my father's home yeah. where he came to. His so neighborhood. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously that's um, a part of my upbringing as well. So it's just interesting to know that, um, you know, the, the, what you're talking about wasn't just behind the scenes thing. It was actually written in law too. Yeah. In some places in this country. It's actually still written in our um, home. Um, these, uh, what do you call it? home loaning uh, companies. Yeah. It's actually still in their uh, script. It hasn't been removed. It's huh. still there. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so how about this? Um, be, just because I want to make sure that I get as much from this conversation as I can, let's talk a bit about the model minority myth. Um, first off, explain what that is. The model minority myth is this myth that we have ascended to the status of the whites. By we, you mean Asian American? Correct. And what we realized, especially in the the last uh, past couple of years, is that we have been stopped at a certain level. Mm -hmm. You know the saying, you know, breaking the the glass ceiling, right? Yeah, yeah. For the AAPI, we call it the bamboo ceiling. Okay. Because we noticed that at the leadership position where you're at the table where decisions are being made. Sure. We're not there. We're just right below it. Mm -hmm. And you may want it to call it the white collar or you may want to call it the professional, doctors, lawyers, you know, Mm -hmm. attorney, but... Nothing outside of that. In terms of creativity and an artistry, that movement has just recently occurred with the younger generation. But as far as the older generation, either they were immigrants or they were here to you know promote their children to be that white collar worker. So now we're seeing that bamboo ceiling, and we can't seem to pass it. And we're being held back. And that's the myth. So uh, I appreciate you saying that. I want to pull something from a Rolling Stone article that I came (laughs) across. Um, So long story short, there was an Oklahoma 
state senator who ended up using the term yellow to describe Asian Americans mm -hmm. in, in a in like a chamber meeting or yes. something like that. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, you, you, we, we call black people black, mm -hmm. you know, brown skin, melanated yeah. folks whose ancestors are more directly tied mm -hmm. to, to Africa. We call those people black white mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. whose ancestry is more directly tied to Europe yep. um, or, you know, Central Asia. Um, you know, we call those people white. Um, and, you know, we have these colored color terms that, you know, uh, work for many people um, and there are no negative connotations necessarily associated with them or maybe we haven't uncovered them yet. But one thing is, um, and I'm going to pull this directly from the article just so that people know this is not what I'm trying. That's not the point I'm trying to make, but I, <laughs> I, I think it's important for everyone to know. Yeah. Uh, the use of the term yellow has an ugly and racist history. The term yellow peril was used in the 19th and 20th centuries to describe people of Asian descent as a threat to Western values and to justify xenophobic immigration policies that severely limited Asian immigration to the U.S. Um, and it uh, goes on to talk about, you know, Donald Trump and a bunch of stuff we don't need to talk about anymore. But um, that term, that color term, as it relates to Asian American people is offensive and this senator didn't know it or maybe didn't just chose to lean into it but that's not the point the point is um, I came across something about the model minority um, so the way this exchange went uh, you know in fact I'm gonna skip it because we've already described that we don't need to talk about that part anymore but um, I'll just jump in right here so forgive me if this doesn't have any previous context but it says quote because of their because their experience has been totally different than many uh others that have not come over um uh raiders remarks push the quote model minority myth that asian americans don't experience negative consequences of racism the same way as other races um and uh it, it goes on to allege that black families were better off and much more intact before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, and so forth. Um, and then he says, you know, the data I've seen, black families were much more intact and much more able to be together, be together in the 1960s than it was even 30 years or 40 years later from that point on. He claimed perpetuating the myth pushed by some Republicans that black culture and not racist government policy is responsible for the racial wealth gap. Um, now, Folks that are not educated, <laughs> folks that don't know what they don't know, it's very easy. Especially, I'm talking about black folks here. Um, it's easy to look at Asian people who have businesses in your communities, our communities. Uh, I'm black, too, by the way, in case you don't know. Um, <laughs> it's easy to look at these people and say, well, they are here in our communities and they are not living or investing in our communities in the same way that a black person would be and completely ignore the McDonald's on the corner, completely <laughs> ignore, you know, the, the Starbucks and, yeah. you know, whatever else. Right. Because I think that that's something that black folks are used to seeing. Yeah. And I think that what exacerbates those circumstances is a lot of times the cultural uh, differences. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the show, um, having been to so many places on this planet where the majority of the population 
is Asian or Pacific Island or yeah. something like that. I've been in a lot of these places. Um, and some of the cultures are just like that, you know? And yeah. it, once you, it's, it's going to sound very weird. I, I'm, I'm, I'm begging you to just, just trust me here and, and follow me, please. But once you start to understand it, you begin to see the beauty in it. It, 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 I'm not saying anybody is better or worse or anybody's perfect or not perfect, but you know, everyone is unique and it's possible to see the beauty in it. There are some cultures where they don't talk as much as we talk in the U S there are some cultures where honor and, and, and values and things like that are just way differently. Um, where, where, exchanges are not as necessary the ex pleasantries aren't ex aren't offered given and received mm -hmm. in the same way it's yeah. just assumed right and it doesn't make them bad but a lot of times when we're only used to seeing the world through our lens and we're only used to seeing our four blocks and if something different is introduced into our uh environment then we take it personal we, we think that it's about us and then in our households we will tell the same stories mm -hmm. oh well you know the, the that store they do this every time we right. walk in mm -hmm. and then the children growing up in that household have a, a an idea that right. when they walk in what is perhaps just a cultural thing is they their belief might be that it's discrimination or these people don't like me and so I have to posture myself accordingly and not like them back and so forth. And I think that once we identify that and once and again I, I it really it's it's the most frustrating thing, <laughs> but it's the most simple thing. You know, if you just hang out with people, if you just see how they are with each other or, or with other people, then you don't learn to take things so personal. You, under, you learn to understand that this is just what it is. And even if you don't like it, you don't have to hate it. Yeah. I mean, just to elaborate on what you just said is that I usually tell people in general that we shouldn't really stress about how other people feel or react to, you know, adversity I always believe that y you are responsible for your own behavior. Sure. And yeah. I'm not going to sit here and to say that, you know, being an AAPI um, person, you know, we are this and that and we're perfect or we're better or whatever the case may be. I have issues within my own community members yeah. that are racist. They are racist. And that is everywhere. And I can't stop them from being racist. But what I can do is continue to speak out and to meet people halfway. Because I can't stop the AAPI community in San Francisco where they're asking more police in their community mm -hmm. to retaliate the stop Asian harm in their community. Like, I can't control that. I would like to say, if they are willing to listen and to tell them the information, how harmful that may become, not just 
for the black community that you're thinking is attacking you, but even for your own community. Yeah. You don't want more police in your community. You need to ask for more resources, more education, more awareness. And I always want to give a shout out to anyone who's listening to ask for education and allyship. And sometimes that requires funding and resources instead of asking for retaliation for more uh you know sentencing you know more policing because that would lead to the opposite because that's how we were divided to begin with well said well said i i think that you know there's a story that that q and i talked about on the show um there was a man who was on vacation in hawaii um black man who was on vacation out there with his uh, new wife and he accidentally very much accidentally walked into the neighboring house of a temple he thought it was the temple he did, he's not from there walked into this house instead of the temple uh, if you've never been to hawaii a lot of the houses look similar just like pretty much every other city <laughs> goes into the wrong house take, takes his shoes off at the door goes in finds out it's the wrong house and leaves the person who owned the house was an asian woman she called the police on him after he apologized called the police on the police showed up of course killed him we know the story this man is not alive anymore because he went to the wrong house to pray um or meditate or whatever it was he was trying to do and i think that that story illuminates not just what the consequences are of like more police and that sort of a thing but also it illuminates exactly how significant the divide can be uh, between our two communities and where our opportunities are to really learn more about each other and what our fears are based in and are they really founded or are they unfounded? Has there been any real harm? And if so, is it something that we can get past? And I think that a lot of those questions will find that there's really not a reason for us to have really too much in the way of issues with each other. Um, As you mentioned earlier, there's a younger generation that don't really feel the immigration um, label as intensely as perhaps their parents and grandparents did. They feel American, and I do believe that a lot of those folks are who we saw on the streets during 2020 when we were protesting. We were arm in arm, mm-hmm. you know, walking together, and um, <clears throat> you know, they're still, you know, if we're if we're dealing with the larger Asian American and Pacific Islander community, um, that we also need to deal with the folks from the older generation and and understand their fears and their concerns too so that we don't end up with more police doing more harm um with that said let's talk about some older asian people now or one person in particular because it is time for our way black history fact Today's uh, Way Black History Fact is about a woman named Yuri Kochiyama. Um, this I pulled my sources from Wikipedia and from NPR. So, without further ado. The brief friendship of Malcolm X and Yuri Kochiyama began close to 50 years ago with a handshake. Um, she and her eldest son uh, were arrested alongside hundreds of other people, mainly African Americans, during a protest in Brooklyn in 1963. Uh, in this packed courthouse, uh, there were a lot of activists who were waiting to hear their uh, 
civil disobedience charges. In walks Malcolm X, who was quickly mobbed by the adoring activists. Kochiyama said, I felt so bad that I wasn't black that this should be just a black thing, she recalled. But the more I see them all so happily shaking hands and Malcolm so happy, I said, gosh darn it, I'm going to try to meet him somehow. Eventually, Kochiyama called out to Malcolm X, can I shake your hand? What for, he demanded, to congratulate you for giving direction to your people, she finally mustered. Malcolm X smiled and extended his hand. Kochiyama remembered how she could hardly believe she was meeting the most prominent black nationalist leader of all time. Uh, she was born May 19, 1921, and she passed June 1st, 2014. Um, I'm going to say her, her, her real name. Uh, there are characters here that I can't read, but her real name says Kochiyama Yuriko, and that's her real name. I, we do believe in names on this show. Um, uh, it says she was an American civil rights activist influenced by her Japanese-American family's experience in an American internment camp. Her association with Malcolm X and her Maoist beliefs, she advocated for many causes, including black separatism, the anti-war movement, reparations for Japanese-American internees, and the rights of political prisoners. In the summer of 1963, Kochiyama family vacation uh, to Birmingham, Alabama to see charred houses and storefronts left behind by racial protests. The Kochiyamas also visited the 16th Street Baptist Church weeks before a bombing there killed four black girls. It was one of the first news stories in the civil rights movement that our mother sat us down to talk about, uh, Kochiyama says. Um, the growing momentum of the civil rights movement and meeting Malcolm X in 1963 radicalized Kochiyama, who became more interested in black nationalism. FBI files later described her as a ringleader of black nationalists and a red Chinese agent. Lovely. Uh, the final meeting, and this is how she came to my attention. Uh, Kochiyama and Malcolm X stayed in touch through postcards and even in a visit to the Kochiyama's apartment. Their last meeting was on February 21st, 1965, just 16 months after their first handshake in New York City's Albedon Ballroom. That Sunday afternoon, gunmen killed Malcolm X moments after he approached the podium to address a weekly meeting of the Organization of Afro-American Afro Unity, which Malcolm X founded after he was expelled from the Nation of Islam. Most of the audience in the ballroom fell to the ground after the gunfire crawling away for safety, but Kochiyama headed toward the injured Malcolm X who was lying on the floor. Quote, I just picked up his head and put it on my lap, Kochiyama says. I said, please, Malcolm, please, Malcolm, stay alive. The moment was captured in a photo in Life magazine in 1965. This is a photo mm -hmm. that many people have not seen. They'll see videos mm -hmm of black people and Asian people going at it, you know, and black people attacking Asian people, see that sort of stuff. But I implore you to look up this video. It's the most human video, mm -hmm. or sorry, the, the most human photo that you will see all day. She's the unidentified Asian woman in the magazine, in Life magazine. We're talking about her now. But in the magazine, she's unidentified, uh, peering worriedly through horn-rimmed glasses at the soon-to-be lifeless Malcolm X. His blood-soaked shirt is open, exposing his bullet-riddled body. Illness and age uh, slowed her down. And um, Oh, and for decades after her brief friendship with Malcolm X, Kochiyama remained committed to causes in the black, Latino, and Asian-American communities. Um, and then lastly, in 1988, she and other Japanese-American internees, including her late husband, Bill, celebrated the signing of the Civil Liberties Act. 
it was a formal government apology that provided reparations to World War II internees and a milestone Kochiyama helped to achieve 25 years ago. So, um, you know, we have a couple minutes left. I'd love to get, you know, your thoughts on Yuri Kochiyama. Um, did, first off, did you know anything about her? I do. I yeah. knew uh, a lot about her. Okay. To the fact that I knew that our history is not shared. And that there is a lot of information out there. Again, the only problem is it's not being taught. Mm. And that is what has, uh, you know, segregated our communities. But if we start looking back, you will see that we were never separated. We were just separated in the recent time with the economical, you know, um, division through uh, loan um, practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can see how if that's done over a span of time, you can see how it can create that mild minority myth. Even within our own community, we had to bring awareness. So coming out here today, talking with you, is just one step forward yeah. to bringing back our real history. Yeah, yeah, I like that. You know, um, I I really feel like you hit the nail on the head. There are some things that we just don't know. And, and I think that when we start to look at, you know, for every story that breaks our hearts Mm -hmm. about each other, you know, there's stories like this that we don't find out about. And then today in our conversation, I learned that, you know, early on in this uh, country's history, that the the dating pool or the marriage pool was asian folks and native and black and hispanic people um which to me suggests that the reason that and as you mentioned the reason that that didn't uh wasn't standardized and that wasn't normalized is because it was a threat to the white supremacist institutions it represented you know uh, folks amassing power in, in numbers and strength in numbers. And so um, interesting that this is our legacy, but I think that we do have a lot of positivity to look forward to. Of course, there's conversations like the ones we're having. Jada Pinkett had one yes. on her show. And yes. of course, on this show, I'm committed uh, not only as a promise to my brother, but personally, having been to all these countries and bro- breaking bread with these people who are my brothers and my sisters. Yeah. You know, eating the foods, listening to the music, walking, you know, in the gardens and so forth. That These are actual things that this man in this body did with his life. And there's no way you can tell me that those are not my brothers and those are not my sisters and that those people don't love me and that I don't love them. And so that is my commitment. And then everybody that's listening, you know, they're going to have to listen to that and we're going to get there together. But that's all the time we have for Civic Cypher today. So, again, I want to thank my last my guest, Lisa Sun, for um, hanging out with us today and, and sharing her thoughts on you know race relations between our two um, communities. Uh, if you want to know more. Uh, or download this or any other episodes, please hit the website, civiccipher.com. And until next week, y'all, peace.